0: Ephesians 1, quickly, most of you were here last week, but whether you were or not, I want to just say a word or two about the purpose of this book, when I here, who wrote it, that sort of thing, and spend no more than two minutes on this, and then we'll go into the text of Ephesians 1, but uh, written by Paul, it was, are you timing me, when I yeah, I <laughs> figured Liz, see if I keep my two minute uh, promise. Um, So so Apostle Paul wrote it. He wrote it from his imprisonment in the early 60s. Early 60s, he was in prison in Rome. He had been there, had been arrested in Jerusalem a couple years before that. They took him to Rome by ship, you know, Mediterranean Sea, shipwreck, all that, and then to land, marched him up to Rome. Probably he wrote this book from there. And as I mentioned last week, I think that Paul probably wrote this to a group of churches. That's why this one isn't as personal as his other ones. Because he wasn't writing it as much to a specific church as it was to a collection of churches of which Ephesus was the most important city. And that's why it ended up being called Ephesians. And, uh, and so you've got so much here. In fact, as we, you know, Ephesians 1 is going to be an introduction. So when we go through this passage tonight, uh, we will kind of set the stage for what the rest of the book is about. It talks a lot about the church. talks a lot about being in Christ. Talks about big theological themes in chapters one, two, and three, and then this is what you do with them: chapters four, five, and six. Uh, breaks down pretty neatly, half and half. You know, uh, this text, and uh, Melly's in the class tonight. Um, she will remember this passage a lot because I, when I was in, when I was at Fried Hardeman, and I was a math major, you know. And decided that I wanted to not do that. I wanted to go into ministry. I kept the math stuff going. But I started taking... This is like my last year there, I guess. After Melanie and I got married. And um, so I started taking as many Bible classes as I could. You know, whatever electives I had. And so, the only sermon I had ever preached... That's in quotes. uh, Was when I was 12, I think. I had... I remember oh man, it was awful. I, I hope that nobody videoed stuff back then, you know, so it's it's not around for perpetuity. But it lasted, you know, all of I think I was supposed to I think I was supposed to last either supposed to go like fifteen minutes or whatever. And I was probably up and down in three minutes, you know. It was it was pretty awful. Anyway. I signed up for expository preaching. Expository preaching in the preaching world there are three different kinds of sermons. You got topical Ser- topical sermons, which is like where you talk about love and you just go all over the Bible, whatever, picking up various verses. then you've got expository, which is you where would you kind of walk through a text you know and, and go verse by verse, that sort of explain it, apply it, here's how you live it, that sort of thing. and then in the middle of there, kind of a hybrid is a textual sermon. So expository is like the most serious kind of preaching, and, and I took this class. And we had to preach. We had to write sermons. I had to write an expository sermon, a manuscript where you just, you know, you, you wrote it all out. And I had no clue what I was doing, you know. And I chose Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. I have no idea how I ended up on that text. But I started preaching not too long after that. Went to preaching school and all that. And I preached Ephesians 1, 3, 14. I preached it like crazy. I mean, I preached it. I could... Melanie, I think she told me a couple of times, she said, I could preach that sermon by now. You know, I've heard that sermon so many times. That was one, and then the other one was Micah 6, the one where he has showed you, oh man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you do justice, love mercy, walk humbly with your God, that text. Those are my two expository sermons for that class. I know they were pretty awful, but whenever I come to Ephesians 1, uh, it, it just kind of brings me joy. Because that was like the first one I ever worked on. And I read and I studied. And uh, and this is a great passage. I mean it's, it's, it's a special passage for a lot of reasons that are more important than that one. But this text is a beautiful extended praise from the Apostle Paul. About all that God has done for us in Christ. I mean it's a beautiful text. And so... When we look at it, I mentioned this to you last week. Ephesians 1 3 through 14 is one sentence in the original text. I mean, it's just like Paul gets started on this, and he's like, he he just keeps on going. And 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 even though the sentence ends at the end of verse 14, the thought actually in scholars debate, as scholars do, they debate how long the thought actually goes. Does it go all the way to the end of Ephesians 1? some say no. It goes all the way to Ephesians 3, the very end of it. This is just like one extended, just like Paul is just going through all these reasons why God is so good and why we bless him, why we worship him. Uh, but tonight we're going to try to cover verses 3 through 14 or get as far as we can in talking about this text. So let's look at it. I, 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 w- I want to read this. I know it's kind of a long, this is uh, you know 12 verses, but it's one sentence. So let's read one sentence from Paul. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him, who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In Him you also, when you heard that word, the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. You know, I have no idea why I picked that text back when I was in college, because it has some of the richest and deepest theology in all the Bible. Uh, this is, if you, you know, you pick out some of the, some of the, Deepest parts of Paul's writings, and you're going to go to Romans and you're going to go to Ephesians 1, really. Uh, And because Paul is exploring some concepts that, you know, we continue to wrestle with things in this passage like election, predestination, choosing. What in the world does that mean? Of course, the religious world is divided on that topic. You have, we'll talk a little bit about this tonight. I don't want to get too far in the weeds and stay there, you know, because you could spend months talking about just kind of exploring the different ways of reading this idea of election. What in the world does that mean when it says God chose us? Does he, did he choose us individually? Did he choose us corporately? How did God choose us? What role does free will have in all this? Do I get to choose or does God just pick me? And what about the people he didn't pick if it's an individual thing? You know, there are all sorts of things. Big, big camps here on this text and Romans 9 is a, is a parallel to this. Romans 9 and 10. But, you know, a couple of big camps. You've heard of Calvinism, right? You know, Calvinism is, is a, a very influential way of reading Scripture that is most, most clearly seen in, um, like, the Presbyterian church. They're, they're like the classic uh, denomination that is, is is Calvinist in their way of reading the Bible. Not It's not only limited to, to Presbyterians, but certainly that is, that's, I mean, that Presbyterian church goes all the way back to John uh, Calvin, you know, in many ways. And so Calvinism is this idea, and this is a, a gross oversimplification of it, and it deserves better than this, but um, Calvinism is this way of reading the story of Scripture that is based on the acronym TULA, you know, the uh, the idea that we are completely, totally and By hereditary, by our our birth, you know, descended from Adam and Eve, we are completely depraved. And as a result of that, we can't do anything. There's nothing we can do. We cannot even want to do the right thing. We have no good in us. It's from birth, you know, from conception. And, but God is good. And so God, in His love and mercy and sovereignty, looked down on us and unconditionally elected, chose certain people to be saved. Sometimes you might hear of double predestination, which is the idea that God elected certain ones to be saved and He elected others to be lost. Double predestination. If you are one of the elect, you're going to be saved. If you're not one of the elect, then you are going to be lost. Again, it's an oversimplification, but I think it's a, it's a fair summary. Um, if you're one of the elect, then the blood of Jesus is going to apply to you. But the atonement of God is not unlimited, it's limited. That's where the L comes in, limited atonement. It only applies to those who are part of the elect. So God's, Jesus' blood is effectual for people who are chosen part of the elect. If you're part of the elect, you cannot resist the grace of God. It's irresistible. The Holy Spirit will overwhelm you, and you will come to faith because you're one of the elect. And the P, that's the I. The P is the perseverance of the saints. Once saved, always saved. Various descriptive phrases, but if you're one of the elect, then you cannot resist the Holy Spirit, and therefore you will be saved. Ultimately. So, that TULIP was not, that acronym was not, that didn't come from John Calvin. It actually came, came pretty early on, but... It didn't. It it did not come from him necessarily, but it's a pretty good summary of it. So uh, some of that teaching is based on Ephesians one, and and the other camp, historically speaking, is called Armenian, and it's based on this. uh, Gets its name from this guy named Jacob Arminius, who did not agree with John Calvin, and he believed in free will. You and I, in Churches of Christ, we may not call ourselves Armenian, but that's where we would fall. If you're picking between the two, um, then they're, they're all nuances of various ones, you know, and all that. But, but, but you and I, we believe Scripture teaches that God created us with free will, and that God did not. I'm getting ahead of myself here. We'll talk about this a little bit more. But God did not elect individuals to be saved and choose individually others to be lost. But rather, God chose. He chose, like in the Old Testament, he elected. Abraham's descendants, Israel, right? That he would establish a covenant with. And now God has elected Israel, the in Christ ones, the body of Jesus, those who find their identity in Christ, the church, the kingdom of Christ. You know? And those who are in Christ are elected. It's not an individual you, not you, you, not you sort of thing, but rather a corporate in Christ choosing does that make some kind of sense? A little bit. So let's. Uh, I wanted to mention that to you just as we go through it, so you know broadly speaking how uh, people are going to read Ephesians one. And because it's got some some words in here we don't, we don't use a lot, you know, especially outside of church. But let's look at verse three, and then we'll we'll circle back and talk a little bit more uh, talk a little bit more about that election when we get to that that word. <clears throat> Okay, so in verse 3, when Paul starts this out, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Do you notice a repetition of the word there? Uh, it's blessing, right? And this is an interesting thing, uh, because some translations, they change it a little bit there, and you don't have the... The word "blessing" repeated three times. I think the NIV, if I remember right, NIV changes a little bit, and you don't—you kind of miss out on knowing that Paul uses the same word uh, in three different ways here. Uh, well, it's in its verb, and then spiritual blessing is, is a noun there. But uh, he says so. He starts out this long, this long idea. I mean, one sentence in the original. It's broken up in multiple English sentences, of course. But this idea that goes at least to the end of chapter one, if not all the way to the end of chapter three, where Paul is just, it's just like Paul is just overwhelmed. Blessed be. I want to praise. I want to worship. I want to bless the name of God. But it's interesting here because he, he starts it off with that. Blessed be the God and Father. But then he says, because he has blessed us. And this is a, I mean, that's a deep idea. You think about what that means. We bless God because He first blessed us. So, obviously God isn't worshiping us, but the word is is very strong here when Paul says he's just overwhelmed with this desire to worship because of what God has done for us. We bless the name of God because we've been blessed with blessings. He's blessed us with blessings therefore we bless Him. Um, It's just a It's a really, really powerful um, statement. The uh, um, There's... Well, in in verse 3 when it says, He's blessed us... What are the next two words there? Blessed us where? In... Well, before that. uh, Blessed us in Christ. In heavenly places is also very important. We'll talk about that. But before we get to that, He's blessed us in Christ, right? And I think this is important for us to think about when we're talking about election. We're talking about predestination here because uh, Paul is all about this. I mean, this, this expression, uh, most people uh, kind of attribute this, creating this phrase to the Apostle Paul. It's used a little bit by John later on in some of John's, but John's writing later on. Paul, Paul uses it all over Ephesians. He uses, uses it all over Romans and Galatians. It's this expression... In Christ. And what in the world does it mean to be in Christ? What does, what does that mean? Again, you can, spend every, you can spend so much time talking about that, to, to be in Christ. We'll, we'll table it a little bit because we're going to come back to it. But for Paul, that is incredibly important to regard yourself, your life, as being wrapped up in him. Hard thing for me, for you, I think, is... Because Wednesday night crowd, all that. A lot of, a lot, of a lot of you guys have been around for a while in the church. You know, you, you can throw around the phrase "in Christ, I'm in Christ." It really doesn't mean that much. I mean, it means something to you, but you know what I mean? It, it just kind of like, just kind of rolls off the lips, or rolls off the tongue, and you don't. Um, I don't even think about what it means. But for Paul, it carries all this, all this important meaning because he's going to talk about big ideas here. He's going to talk about election. He is going to talk about verse 5, predestination. In verse 7, He's going to talk about redemption. He's going to talk about in verse 9, God revealed His will to us in Christ. Uh, He's going to, in verse 11, in Him, we've obtained an inheritance. And um, we're sealed with the Holy Spirit down in verse 13, in Him. All this stuff is in Christ. You know, I... uh, this past Sunday when I was preaching on the first part of the Lord's Prayer, in Matthew 6, the, our Father who is in heaven, we can call Him our Abba. Why? Because we have been adopted into the family of God. We, we relate to God based on the fact that Jesus is our representative. So we, are, we can't call God our Father. Because of anything in us, but we can call him our abba, because Jesus is the per- perfect Son of God, who became what we could not be, and invited us into this relationship but it 's more than a relationship I, for, this, is, this is strong wording here, and it 's not just i 've got a relationship with Christ, you know that, that i 'm a christian i 'm a follower of Jesus, like spatially and this, this is a very biblical idea, but spatially. Jesus is my rabbi, he's ahead of me, I follow him, but for Paul, he's more than that. It's not just that Jesus is in front of me and I'm trying to walk in his footsteps, though that's true. It is that in some way, in some mysterious way, you and I as as Christians are in him. And to be honest, I think sometimes we, we kind of, we forget about this, I forget about it, because we talk about, sometimes we talk about not as much in churches of Christ, but certainly in the religious world. We talk about inviting Jesus Christ into our hearts, you know. That Jesus lives in us. I believe that. You, I'm guessing you believe that as well, that Jesus is in us. But the Bible actually doesn't say that a whole lot. It says a ton more that we're in Him. Rather than you're inviting Jesus into your heart. Jesus has invited you to identify with Him and His perfection. So, I don't know. It's lots, lots of deep stuff here. And uh, we, I think we're just kind of grasping at it a little bit to try to figure out what exactly it means for us. So, I just want you to notice that. I'll, I'll try to point it out as we go through it. But in Christ in verse, verse 3. In Him in verse 4. Um, verse 7. In Him. Into verse 9 in Christ verse 10 in him verse 11 in him verse 12 in Christ verse 13 in him do you kind of get the sense that this matters for Paul whatever he's talking about with the in him stuff it matters because he's like he says it a lot Um, 11 times in this little section so it's all over the place so we'll come back to that Uh, In him. And then uh, Corey mentioned this a second ago. This other important phrase in verse 3 and in in Ephesians is in the heavenly places or in the heavenlies. So, what does that mean? This is unique to Paul uh, and it's pretty unique to Ephesians. This is something important for him to think about in Ephesians for some reason. So, what does it mean in the heavenly places? So, he blesses us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. I want you to you know, hold your spot there in verse 3, but look down to verse 20. This is worth talking about a little bit because it's, such a, it's kind of a unique phrase that we don't see elsewhere. Verse 20. What does it mean? Well, verse 20 means this. He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places. So there, it sounds like Paul is talking about wherever God is. In heaven, in the heavenly realm, in the heavenlies, in the heavenly places. Wherever Jesus was seated at the right hand of God, that's the heavenlies. Uh, look at chapter 2, verse 6. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Well, what in the world? In what sense are you and I in heaven with Jesus right now? Like, you know, you see what I'm getting at? It's, it's, it's kind of hard to figure out. It's, it's kind of hard to suggest that Paul means the same thing every time he says it. Because in the chapter 1, it seems like he's, Jesus is seated at the right hand of God in the heavenly places. So that's where Jesus was exalted to at the resurrection and ascension. And yet here in verse 6 of chapter 2, Paul says that He has raised us with Him and seated Him with Him in the heavenly places. So we have been baptized and raised up and exalted and now we sit with Christ in the heavenly places. What in the world? Look at chapter 3, verse 10. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. So God wants the church, that, that through the church, God's wisdom might now be made known to the rulers and the authorities. Who are the rulers and the authorities, and what are they doing in the heavenly places? Is it angelic beings? Is it is this some sort of... Uh, Paul's certainly going to talk about rulers and authorities in another sense later on. Look in chapter 6, verse 12. And then we'll go back to chapter 1. So last chapter of the book, near the end, Paul says this. Well, I'm going to go back and read, start in verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord... And in the strength of his might, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. You see why this is a little bit hard to figure out what what, what Paul's talking about. Because Jesus has been seated at the right hand of God in the heavenly places. You and I have been exalted to the heavenly places. God wants his wisdom to be known to be made known by the church to rulers and authorities in the heavenly places, and then in chapter six, he flat out says these uh, negative powers are in the heavenly places. So it's an inadequate thing to, uh, certainly incomplete thing to say that when Paul says that he's been that we've been given all spiritual blessings uh, in Christ in the heavenly places that he's talking about the heavens. So it seems like if there's there's a consistency here. He seems to be suggesting, I think, based on the way you read this throughout Ephesians, that there is a spiritual dimension to all things. And yet we live here in the physical world, but there is the spiritual dimension that is just as real as the physical world, just as real, the heavenlies, the spiritual realm, where Jesus was exalted to, where you and I are exalted to, there's this spiritual battle that's taking place in the heavenly places. So... There's a sense in which, it seems to me at least, that Paul is saying that we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. But, but, but what, it, what it means is the way we live is going, to be, is going to be influenced by something that we cannot see with our physical eyes. That there's this spiritual dimension that is all-encompassing. And that changes the way we approach life. Because when Paul, Paul's going to get to this in a bit, Chapter 4, you know, he's going to say, everything I've been teaching you, now you've got to live this. You've got to live it day to day. Talks about marriage. Talks about parenting. Talks about the church. Talks about unity and stuff going on in the church. It talks about a lot of that. So there's, for Paul, there's very much of a concern that we be caught up in the spiritual dimension, but not so much. Well, we we get caught up in the spiritual dimension and allow that to change the way we live day-to-day. We'll probably talk about it more as we go through this and encounter that phrase. But I wanted to give you a little bit of a taste of the depth of what Paul's doing here. You know, I've been thinking about that. I remember when I <laughs> preached this sermon back in you know 30 years ago. Uh, I had no clue what the heavenly places are, and I don't know that I know. I think maybe I know a little bit, a little bit more than I did 30 years ago. But I still, when I every time I study this heavenly places idea, I'm like, I don't. I think I really fully understand exactly what Paul's doing with this phrase, you know? So it's, there's a lot going on here, I guess, is what I want you to remember, and and, and I think we don't have to understand it exactly, but I do think it's important for us to recognize Paul, is, at, at the least he is saying that we need to understand that there's stuff going on in the spiritual realm, in the heavenlies, that is crucial, and there's this cosmic battle, this cosmic war. God has already defeated Satan, but the battle rages on, and he will not be, he will not fully realize his own demise until the end, you know. But there's this, this heavenly dimension, this heavenly reality that we as Christians need to focus on. Okay. We're not going to get through verse 14 we? Alright, so um, bless us in Christ for every spiritual blessing in the heavenly, uh, heavenly places. And, um, and, and scholars, commentators on, on Ephesians suggest that this paragraph here is the theme of the whole book. That the rest of the book and some people would say the rest of Paul's teaching anywhere is just an, ex- an uh, exposition of what he's saying here. So this is Really important. So it's worth our time to spend a little bit extra time with it, perhaps. Let's look at verses 4 through 6. This is where he starts this idea of choosing. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Okay, so let's talk about choosing and predestiny. There's always a temptation to kind of make a caricature of the view that you don't agree with and defeat that straw man, you know, that that caricature of it. Uh, Calvinism is is a robust uh, system of reading scripture that has influenced a lot of people over the years. And I, I think there are things in it that ought, that, that we ought, to, that ought to influence us because I think as, as things go, the pendulum always swings. And though I believe Calvinism at its foundation is wrong, I do think that sometimes that emphasis on God and God's sovereignty and everything is of God's choosing, that when the pendulum started swinging away from that, where we ended up at times is that we sometimes make it all about us. See, the extremes here are with the the Calvinist way of reading this passage is we don't have free will. Everything that happens is according to the plan of God. And even when we don't understand it, God somehow orchestrates things according to His will and if you're a Christian, it's because God chose you. If you're not a Christian, it's because God chose you not to be one. Uh, and then, as the pendulum swings, though, I sense sometimes in our own reading of Scripture, there's a whole lot about me. There's a whole lot about us in this. There's a whole lot about, well, you do the right thing. You make the right choice. You uh, you live the right kind of life. You be holy. you You get it right. And if you get it right, then you'll be saved. See, see, I think the, the opposite end of the opposite end of the pendulum swing here from Calvinism is, is an unhealthy obsession with self and with humanity. And it's, it, it becomes all about us getting it right. Kind of a legalism sort of thing. You see what I'm getting at here? And that is unhealthy. You know, it's it's not what scripture teaches. And so I think somewhere somewhere in there is is a healthy way of reading the Bible. And and that's why in in our context, in our setting here, I emphasize a lot when we're reading the biblical story. I want you guys always to remember that the primary actor in the Bible is who? It's God. It's always God. Story's about God. Story's not about us. Now, I know you can push back on that a little bit, and that's that's okay. Because we're in it, but it's not about us. You know, the story from beginning to end, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And in the end, Revelation 22, God's going to bring everything to his will. And, and, and it's about the story of God. And, and sometimes in our, in our effort, in our, in our uh, excitement about responding to what is false about one thing, then we end up embracing something that is also dangerous. And so, what, what's Paul talking about then? <clears throat> uh, predestination in 60 seconds. Um, you know, we'll, uh, we'll continue this, and we won't spend a ton of time talking about it because we just can't, but uh, as I mentioned, as I hinted at the beginning of this, um, uh, the, the language Paul uses here is, is plural language in, in, in corporate language and not individual language. And, uh, and so I think it's important to read it that way, even as He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. you read that choosing in the context of the in, entire story of Scripture, and you know that God chose Abraham, an individual. But, but the elect people were those who were part of the covenant, right? The, the family of Abraham, Israel. They were in the covenant. And within that covenant, within that nation of Israel that was descended from Abraham, you could apostatize from the covenant. And, and, and you could also come into the covenant. You could be grafted in. You could be adopted into the family, right? Even if you weren't Jewish, you could, you could be invited in. You could, you could be a recipient of the blessings of the covenant. And I think that's a good way of reading what happens in the New Testament. That just as Abraham was chosen to be the father of a great nation and the covenant blessings were bestowed on Israel, right? Jesus is the one, quote unquote, chosen. He is the son of God. He is, he is someone Abraham could never be. He is the head and all those who are part of the covenant are those who relate to God through Jesus. So we are children of Abraham through faith in Jesus. You know, we, we, we come into the covenant through Jesus. And when we're in the covenant, we are part of the elect. And I believe that's the right way of, of, of reading what Paul does here and what he does elsewhere. It's that, are you part of the elect? It's not that God picked you and not your neighbor. God selected the covenant people, the church. He gave you an opportunity. He did not take away your free will. And you responded to His grace. And you're part of the elect. So when it says He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, it was always in the plan of God that Jesus would be the one who would come into the world and establish His covenant people that became and Israel, that Israel can never be, you know. Um, okay. Let me say one more thing about this. And I appreciate I was reading one commentary on this today, and you know, he made a good point that I that I want to reiterate and I want to emphasize. Notice what he says. What Paul says at the end of verse four: He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should what? We should be holy and blameless before Him. That whatever a person believes about election, you might disagree with what I say about election, predestination. But whatever we believe about election, we need to remember that God's election has always been God's choosing in order for us to be and do something. It's not just this passive thing where, oh yeah, I'm one of the elect. Almost like with a superior attitude. It's never that with Paul or with anybody in Scripture. I am part of the elect, and God has chosen me in Christ so that I might, I might be holy and without blame, so that God might be glorified through the church. It's never about me or you. It's always about fulfilling our calling that, that God may be glorified in all things. And we'll point this out more, but as you read through this text, you know, as I was reading it earlier, it uh, like... Verse 6, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he's blessed us. Uh, it's, it's, um, it's all about the praise that God deserves. All right. All right, got to stop there. We're out of time. I appreciate you guys being. And I know this is some heavy stuff, some of it. But I appreciate your patience. And uh, we'll, we'll keep going with this. It'll be good for us, I think.